Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Duncan Campbell to the show. Duncan Campbell is the VP of Project Development at Scale Microgrid Solutions, where he focuses on deploying hybrid microgrid systems for commercial and industrial customers throughout North America. Additionally, Duncan co-founded the NYC DERs Meetup, a monthly education and networking forum for professionals in the distributed energy space. Duncan, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. I'm doing great. I'm uh, really looking forward to uh, this conversation. Me too, Duncan. Duncan, I'd like to open this show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Sure. So I think something that might be interesting about me is despite being an engineer and now being involved in the business world, I actually grew up um, uh, surrounded by the arts. Both of my parents are classical musicians. And so that world was sort of the, uh, the professional and academic world I was surrounded by. Uh, most of my, uh, most of my, during most of my upbringing. And it, uh, I think provided an interesting perspective that, um, juxtaposes the world I'm in now, which is very different. That really is interesting. Do you play any instruments? Well, I did. So when I was a kid, all of my parents' friends who were also musicians or in the arts in some way, maybe theater or ballet or things like this, uh, would ask me what I play. And I typically respond that I play baseball. But I did play an instrument as well. I played a cello until maybe I was 12 or 13. I started when I was pretty young. Um, but what I found was basically I was too lazy. Um, to be a high-performance classical musician requires a tremendous amount of work. It's insanely competitive. And I, I as a kid, did not have the focus for that. <laughs> so at, at some point, I, I dropped off on uh, on instruments and focused more on on school and sports and and friends and other interests. You know that hits really close to home for me right now. I have an eleven year old daughter, just started sixth grade last year, and she's been playing the bassoon and she's practicing an hour every night. She's currently first chair, competing for first chair every week, and she's just taken to the instrument. I'm really just I'm admiring watching her. I'm not pressuring her at all, but it's interesting how she's taken to the instrument. But to your point, she has this quote-unquote worthy rival who's an oboe player and it's her best friend and they go back and forth every week for who's going to be first chair. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, you know, looking back at my time having played an instrument, um, perhaps because the sort of high achieving uh, musical environment I was in, I thought it was all or nothing, right? Either this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life or not. Looking back, I, I wish I stuck with it, even if it wasn't going to be uh, the thing, um, just because I think it's it's a supremely um, enlightening kind of endeavor, um, and it it unlocks certain parts of your brain that you might not be aware of without engaging in it. You know, you read my mind, and you mentioned the word juxtapose earlier. Last year, I finished a biography of Einstein, and several times throughout the book, they talk about how when he needed to think, he would go away to play his violin. And he played his violin his entire life and also playing in bands. And I've heard many engineers, I think, I, I feel like the education system's actually drawn too much of a line between science and art. And I know recently they've you know introduced STEAM and put the A for their art. But I feel like that 
creative escape actually does help the STEM side of the brain too. So I, I feel like they do kind of go hand in hand. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's a whole branch of um, academic music, which is, you know, very concerned with, with math. Um, it's, it, I can't even really speak to it, but the, the details of music theory are incredibly complex and quantitative. And there's, I think, a number of folks who, um, who are deep into that music theory world who could also be engineers or statisticians or, um, or in finance or, or, you know, professions like this, um, because they, I think they do draw on a similar um, part of the brain. Absolutely. And since you mentioned your current profession, can you share a little bit about your current endeavor or company? Sure. So I am with a company called Scale Microgrid Solutions. We build microgrids primarily for commercial or industrial energy users. Um, so the, the line drawn there is sometimes when people think of a microgrid, they think of what our industry would call a community microgrid. So this is connecting a bunch of different energy users into one um, one system that sort of sits below the larger grid. While that is something we're interested in and off and on we will engage with, the primary element of our business is doing this for single off-takers. So an industrial plant, a large commercial building, um, a data center, a hospital, a university, things like this. Um, and we do that mostly for regulatory reasons. Uh, it's very, very hard to connect multiple end users because you start reaching into very muddy waters about uh, you know, utility franchise rights and private wires and things like this. Whereas if you stick to a single off-taker, there's a streamlined, repeatable process to do that. Uh, so in the company, then, I'm the vice president of project development. And what this really means is... Before a project is um, closed, before you know we, we and a customer have signed a contract that commits us to building and operating a microgrid for them, we have to figure out what the microgrid even should be, what its goals are, what assets will make up the microgrid, what costs and revenues will be associated with it, and all of these things. So, so that's my job, determining uh, what, what these microgrid opportunities are and how we get to that point where a customer is really happy with what we've proposed and we can move forward. So for those that might not be familiar with microgrids, can you share how a microgrid works in conjunction with the existing grid? Sure. I think the easiest way to describe this is that in our traditional power generation system, among many requirements it has, two of the requirements it has is the power system needs to be flexible. So it needs to be able to increase or decrease generation relatively rapidly in order to meet the load on the system. And another element of this power generation system that is often disregarded is we need backup sources, right? So commercial and industrial buildings and some residential facilities as well have backup generators because sometimes the larger power system goes down and you need a backup. What microgrids do at their core is they combine these two concepts. This idea that the grid needs flexible assets that can ramp up power when it's needed, and the grid also needs backup power. And if we do both of those things 
on site where the energy is being used, you get this outcome that is a sort of a one plus one equals three type outcome, right? Where previously two different assets had to do this and thus the cost to the overall system was quite high. Now one more advanced asset can do this and there's a better utilization associated with that asset. At, at its core, that's what we do. There's a number of other ways to think about microgrids, but I find that uh, resonates with people in the energy sector most often. Now, you mentioned backup, and I think I read last year that Atlanta Airport was looking or investigating into a microgrid. And I think I've heard some conversations recently about LA. They had a power outage early in February or January. Can you speak to some of these challenges and issues that you're seeing in these airports and some of the what you're what you're hearing in the industry regarding microgrid and some of these larger facilities? Sure. Yeah. So airports and similarly mission critical facilities. So facilities where if they were to lose power, it would be a big problem. Are all of them right now are considering microgrids, um, and the reason is while they they have always had this requirement for uninterrupted power. Historically, the only way to get access to uninterrupted power was to buy a lot of diesel generators. And when you think about diesel generators, it's kind of a tough deal because you spend a lot of capex on them. Then every year you need to maintain them. You know, you have to do preventative maintenance. You have to change the fuel every so often because it can go bad. You have to test it a certain number of hours per year. And it really does nothing for you in good circumstances, right? If all goes well, you'll never have to use it. So it's pure cost. It's just adding to the cost of the airport or the shipping shipping port or the hospital or whatever it might be. And what's exciting about microgrids, and this goes back to, I guess, my previous point about really what microgrids are, is these facilities, as the requirement for energy resilience is increasing, because we are seeing the power system interrupted more frequently, they're realizing there is a, a, a form of backup power which can actually be useful to them during events, uh, during times where the grid is not down. And so that's what really why these, these facilities are interested in microgrids. It's an opportunity to transform a cost center, backup generation, into a profit center, microgrids. Um, so a lot of the deals we're working on, for example, Uh, We're financing these microgrids, so we actually own the assets and we sell the energy services to the end user. And the, um, the, the, the amount of money they save throughout the year by intelligently using the microgrid to reduce their energy costs is less than the amount they pay us in service payments. And so when you compare those two scenarios, spend no money up front and save a little bit of money every year to the backup generator scenario, which is buy a backup generator, fuel it, maintain it, and hopefully you never have to use it. (laughs) That's why firms are really excited about, or large facilities are really excited about microgrids right now. I really appreciate that clarification. So, you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you're doing. You know, there's opportunity cost for you to be engaged in microgrids right now. So what's your driving force? What's your why? What, what keeps you in this industry? 
Well, two things. One, I'm not sure if there is an opportunity cost because I don't know anything else. <laughs> my my entire short career has been in distributed energy. So if if there was not a scaled microgrid solutions, I'm not sure what I'd be doing. Um, but with that said, there's there's a number of compelling reasons uh, that explain why I'm at scale microgrid solutions. If I had to pick one, I think the biggest one is that microgrids offer this really exciting opportunity when it comes to climate action, which is they both represent mitigation and adaptation. So if you read the Paris Accord, the thing everyone knows about it is it says we have to reduce our emissions such that we we limit global warming to uh, two degrees centigrade or 1.5 degrees centigrade, hopefully. Um, and the way you do that is we reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions. And much of that is associated with the energy sector. So when a solar project gets built or a wind project gets built, it reduces the economy's greenhouse gas emissions. The other part of the Paris Accord that is often neglected or forgotten, and I understand why, is adaptation. So while we can't use adaptation as a way to ignore mitigation, we do need to adapt to the level of climate change that we've already ordered up. And from an energy perspective, what that means is we need a more resilient system. There are going to be more storms and natural disasters which test our energy system. Um, over the past few years, we've seen in the U.S. alone a number of examples of this. The hurricanes... Uh, the the multiple hurricanes in Puerto Rico, the hurricane in in Texas, uh, the wildfires in California, all of these things have tested our energy system massively. And what I think is so exciting about microgrids is right, we can get this simultaneous deployment of mitigation and adaptation. And there's not a lot of things that do that. In fact, in traditional discourse around climate action, Mitigation and adaptation have often thought to be working against each other, right? Because, for example, a great way to make the energy system resilient is for everyone to get a diesel backup generator. Does that reduce emissions? Not exactly. Um, so that, if I had to pick one thing, is is why I think it's exciting to be be at scale. It's this opportunity to apply a lot of leverage to both of the things we need to accomplish when dealing with climate. So. Have you always been interested in climate change, even back from your cello playing days? <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I've always been interested in it. Um, however, it's certainly something I've always been aware of. I think my generation or age group was really the first to grow up with uh, global warming, we called it at the time, in science class. I remember being in sixth grade and being introduced to the greenhouse effect. Um, and it was uh, pretty eye-opening. So it's, I think people my age are kind of the first to have lived with the idea of climate change from a young age. Um, I also grew up in a town that is uh, formerly a coal town, um, and it's something we can get into more if it interests you, but I think that uh, seeded my interest in energy transition, which is, you know, very very related to climate change. I, I would love to hear more about it. Sure. So uh, I'm from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. 
there's hot debate over how you actually pronounce the name of this town. Some will say Wilkes-Barre. Some will even go as far as to say Wilkes-Barre, which is interesting. But I call it Wilkes-Barre. And this town was sort of the epicenter of anthracite coal mining. And anthracite is interesting because it's not the coal we use anymore. And this town built up very rapidly, supported a massive population increase, and generally created a lot of wealth. Um, but then anthracite coal as a fuel really fell out of popularity. And by by the 40s or 50s, it was pretty much done. And industry left, the, uh, the, the city really lost its main economic underpinning, and it's had a lot of trouble adapting. And I think what's interesting about it is that it was sort of a, uh, a foreshadowing for what we'd see with the rest of the coal industry, um, which we're seeing now, right? Um, even, you know, the last election, for example, coal was a big part of it. Um, even if there weren't many coal industry folks um, in numbers, it, it conceptually became a big part of the election. And all of the uh, side effects of an industry going by the wayside and the social upheaval and discomfort that can create, uh, my town saw 50 years earlier, 60 years earlier. Uh, so I've, I've, I think that, um, you know, play, played a role in me being interested in sort of the energy industry and how it's changing and how it affects people. I remember as a kid, you know, one of the, you know, we, we always were learning about the, the former coal industry. We took field trips to coal mines when uh, I was a bit older, uh, we snuck into an old coal breaker and uh, explored around it, right? So this was sort of something we lived with this like shadow of the industry around us. And it was, uh, it was an interesting environment. So let's dig deeper on that for a moment. Your town where you grew up sounds to be like, pun intended, the proverbial canary in the coal mine 50 yeah. years ago. Yeah, I think that's a what? good way to put it. What are some of the lessons that you wish that perhaps today we would have learned earlier? Um, well, I think the the big one is is really that you're not going to beat macroeconomics, right? In my town, and this was a bit before my time, but I've heard these stories about this this constant promise that they were going to bring back coal, right? that the town's fortunes would be reversed because we just need to make coal a big deal again. And in this case, anthracite coal. And obviously that never happened, even though it was the message of many politicians and local leaders for decades, right? And it took until maybe the late 90s or early 2000s for the city to fully socially have digested that coal wasn't coming back and our opportunity to reverse the fortunes of the city lied elsewhere and we'd have to creatively discover that right so we wasted decades with this social attachment to something that was just gone and i think that's the biggest lesson we can learn from these things uh there's there's no really fighting these big economic trends but then the second lesson that's really important um, from the outside looking in, so when you're not a part of one of these communities, 
is uh, to have some empathy because it is really difficult for a uh, for a city or region to have its primary economic underpinning pulled from it and and sometimes pulled out from it very rapidly, right? And so we need to better understand how we can help these areas uh, because I think leaving them behind is one, um, it's it's not in line with my values. Uh, but two, I think it becomes politically untenable uh, because then you create enemies out of these regions and you you put their interests against the interests of of climate action and clean energy and resilience and all of these things, which I don't think is an outcome we want. You know, I think our empathies align. If you could share a message or perhaps have the ear of a political, you know, someone with some political clout, what would you suggest that we do as a society to not leave people behind? It's a really good question. And I won't pretend to be uh, the policy mastermind here. I'll, I'll come up with a few thoughts on it, though. One, I'd, I'd like to maybe establish a context. What's What makes the situation we're in currently even more difficult is, on one hand, we're experiencing, the economy is experiencing this energy transition, right? And there is this risk of leaving people behind, and we have to we have to deal with this. But it's not just that. It turns out we actually have to make this energy transition occur more quickly than it otherwise organically would because we have the deadline associated with climate change. So we have to not just let the economy sort of run its course and transition to clean energy as it is starting to because the economics make sense. We actually have to supercharge that dynamic and uh, sort of be time travelers and get there more quickly than organically we would. So that risk of leaving people behind is 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 even further enunciated, right? Because this is going to have to be a more rapid transition than even it organically would uh, would follow. And so that's sort of the to set the stage. That's that's the context I think here, um, and it it means that the challenge is pretty great, right? And Again, I, I, I won't claim to be the policy mastermind who can say exactly what will will solve this, but I think at its core, the issue is we need to take this very seriously um, and be willing to take measures that perhaps seem a bit radical or a bit um, outside of the Overton window, right? And, and I don't know what these measures are exactly, um, whether it's... Um, <laughs> something like a jobs program, uh, like during FDR's time, or whether it's giving people allowances to move to new areas where there is more economic activity. Uh, there's probably a number of things we can do. But the main thing is, I think we need to be open-minded um, and willing to deal with the, the gravity of this problem with solutions that match that. Uh, which might feel a bit extreme, but I think are warranted. So, you know, in the VC world, there's this phrase, accelerate the moment. So I feel like the first part of what you said is to accelerate the moment. And the second part of what you're saying is that we need to manage the acceleration. So keep our hands on the wheels and make sure we go in the right direction. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, what I was trying to say basically is we have this dynamic we need to manage, but that dynamic is not just that created from the natural economic energy transition, but also created from the fact that we need that transition to occur even more quickly than it otherwise would. So it's sort of sort of doubling the problem, if you will. And therefore, the solutions that are required are are even more important. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the jobs program. I had a lady on the show about 10 episodes ago, Justice Warrior, Tracy is her name, and um, she's running a program here in Dallas, actually training solar installers. And she's using people from a lower income bracket and also people that have, you know, um, she likes to call them returning citizens. So people that have, you know, served their time and have now coming back mm-hmm. to society. And she's training these crews of individuals who can then create teams of individuals to install solar panels on roofs. And I think that kind of aligns with the jobs program that you mentioned. And I also like the idea of incentivizing individuals to move. And, you know, obviously you can't save everyone, but having a program in place, maybe a wider safety net to help during this transition, I think would make for an overall healthier economy, you know, five, 10 years down the road than if we continue on the path that we're on. Yeah, I, th- I, I think you're right. Um, and that's a perfect example of I, what I was considering when, when, I, when I made my comments about um, dealing with this economic displacement that will occur with energy transition. I also think it turns out we need a lot of people who know how to start install solar panels, right? Like these things uh, sort of play into each other where not only do we need to care for our own and make sure people aren't left behind because it's both the right thing to do and because climate change is politically unfeasible if we don't do that. But also, we need this workforce. We need to deploy wind and solar and batteries and advanced nuclear and geothermal and all this stuff faster than we can imagine. And there aren't enough skilled people to do that right now. So it also helps solve the problem in a very practical sense. Absolutely right. I've spoken to some city managers here locally, and they're really trying to go to local high schools and emphasize the trades. And, you know, perhaps this point where we're at where colleges are having challenges. And I think Elon Musk came out last year and said, it doesn't matter if you, even if you don't have a high school diploma, if you can do the work, I'll hire you. I think there's going to need to be a mental shift away from, you know, only knowledge work and only white collar work and you know, reinstituting apprenticeship programs and some of the trade programs too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess this is, maybe this is just an anecdote, but I think it's interesting and ties in. Um, my, I remember my father telling me about his father. So my grandfather, um, when he was a young man working in the CCA camps. Um, so during the New Deal, he was a part of a team that I think was cutting logging roads through mountains. Um, and he talked about those times when he was an older man, extremely romantically, um, referred to them as some of the best times of his life because he was working hard, he was making money, uh, and he was helping the country, right? Who, who doesn't want all of those things? Um, and even though it was super difficult, and certainly he made more money later in his life, because I don't think these folks were getting paid enormously, right? It was something he looked back on with a lot of pride and really fondly. And I, I think we can create a moment like that for climate action as well. I agree. 
So Duncan, I'd like to end this show by asking this question. And you've already given some, but I'm going to push a little bit more. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Sure. That's an interesting question. Um, I think right now there's, and by right now, I really mean right now. I've seen this evolve over the past few months. There's this movement of workers in sort of the the managerial economy, the white collar economy, the professional economy, people who are becoming really tuned in to the necessary action of dealing with climate change and want to get involved. And I think these people begin to explore the topic and sometimes can become quickly overwhelmed. This is the biggest and thorniest systems problem humanity has ever faced. It's incredibly complex and you can be in this game for the past, you know, 10 years and still not really know all the details, right? And so if I had to give a piece of advice, it might be directed at those who want to enter the energy transition, climate um, workforce or intellectual force or uh, academic force, whatever, whatever the right sort of frame of that is for you, I'd say just get involved. Find a thing that interests you that hopefully also aligns with what you're good at and what your skill set is and just jump in. And from there, you'll probably find the sort of higher leverage points that you can apply your skills. Um, but without jumping in, I think it's it's a challenge that can be extremely daunting. So so that would be my suggestion. If this sort of thing interests you and you want to uh, apply your skills in a way that helps helps the world deal with this incredibly important issue, I'd say find an entry point and just get involved. I appreciate that advice. And for you out there listening, Duncan actually leads a meetup in New York City for distributed energy. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. So feel free to reach out on meetup to his. Duncan, what's the official name of the meetup? It's called the NYC DERS meetup. DER stands for Distributed Energy Resources. Um, you can find us on meetup.com by that name. Um, also, if you find me on Twitter, I'm always posting about it. And yeah, I found recently the meetup has, in addition to serving the function of being a space for people who are really in the distributed energy space to kind of talk about the ins and outs of it and present on interesting topics and all of that, we also have been getting more and more folks from outside the industry who'd like to transition into it. Um, and it's been really cool to see that. So so certainly, yes, if, if these topics interest you, particularly distributed energy, um, find us and, and come to the next meetup. They're, they're monthly. That's wonderful, Duncan. This has been a great conversation. Before we go, is there anything that we've not explored that you'd like to explore or share before we go? Um, well, typically, I think conversations go are more of a two-way street. <laughs> I'd be interested in learning more of your thoughts on all of this stuff. Um, but uh, at the moment, I think my my brain's been uh, pretty well exercised and I don't have anything left in the tank. So I will probably follow up with you with some questions because I'm interested in your perspective on, on a lot of these issues. Well, maybe we'll roll with a part two here soon. Awesome. I would really enjoy that. Duncan, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Raj. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production. 
And if you want to show your support and help us grow, please share with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle.